Brian mentioned that he, he had already received his verbal reprimand this morning. I just want to make it clear that didn't come from me. It was a joke. It was a joke, okay. Uh, I don't do verbal reprimands anymore. You see, for my early birthday present, I have received a stun gun, and so I plan to use that. <laughs> Y'all think I'm kidding, don't you? But I <laughs> That's what our daughters decided we needed for our birthdays. Janice's birthday, which has passed, and mine's coming up, so they just, uh, that's the thing that makes me nervous is that they gave her one, too. <laughs> but uh, I guess they could come in handy, a very practical gift, I suppose. But uh, I may bring it to the next men's business meeting, as a matter of fact. Uh, no, we have good meetings. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it won't be needed. Uh, we appreciate the presence of everyone tonight. We are studying from First John, and we are looking at that epistle, which uh, has been often called the epistle of certainties, but it is also known as the epistle of love. And for obvious reasons, because the very section that we uh, began last time and uh, continued this time tonight emphasizes, as do other parts of this great epistle, emphasizes the importance of love for our brethren and how we manifest that love and how we show that love. And so John has been called the apostle of love, and this has been designated not only the epistle of certainties, but the epistle of love. But the certainties aspect comes from the word know, or some form of the word know, K-N-O-W, that we find repeated in this great epistle, thus giving us the assurance and the confidence that we can know that we know God. We can know that we are in covenant relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And John has already told us in a passage we have studied earlier in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And later he will remind us in 1 John 5 that his commandments are not grievous. That is, they are not burdensome. They are not too much for us to to bear. In fact, it's a a load that is a light load, a load born in love. It reminds us of the greatest invitation that has ever been extended by the Lord himself who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, as the new King James says, and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Any burden we bear for the Lord is a light burden because it is a burden born out of love. Love for him who first loved us, 1 John 4, 19, a verse we have uh, not yet studied, but we'll study shortly, the Lord willing. And because of that love that he has manifested for us and the reciprocation of that love for him, then indeed the keeping of his commandments is not something that is burdensome. And one evidence that we are in that wonderful covenant relationship with him is the love that is seen in our lives. And that's what we noticed uh, last time, culminating with verse 16 of 1 John 3, where John wrote, by this we know love. After discussing the love that we're to have and contrasting that with the hatred that Cain felt toward his brother Abel and using them as examples back up in verse 12, he says, here's the very culmination of that love. Here's the ultimate manifestation of that love. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. 
Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In other words, we ought to love our brethren to the extent that we would actually lay down our lives for them. And that leads us into our study for this evening where John continues in verse 17 of 1 John 3 to make an argument, if you will, from the greater to the lesser. In other words, in verse 16 he has said, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the greatest manifestation of our love for our brethren we could ever be called upon to show, isn't it? That we would actually die for our brethren. Well, if indeed we ought to love our brethren enough to die for them, then what about verse 17? Here's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If you would die for your brother, will you not help your brother in extending what your brother needs in terms of material goods when you see a brother who is in need? If indeed you would die for him, would you help him live by giving him what he needs when he is in trouble, when he is in desperate need of this world's goods? But whoever, he writes, has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How can you claim to love your brother if you have what your brother needs in terms of this world's goods? Literally, the idea here is this world's life, that which gives life. He's not talking about worldly things. He's talking about the things that are the necessities of life here now, those things that are needful to sustain our lives. And when you have that which is needful to sustain life and you see a brother who lacks what is needed to sustain life, then you shut up your heart from him? How can you claim to love God? How can you claim that the love of God abides in you if you refuse that kind of help? And when he, when he mentions the love of God, he's not talking about God's love for us. He's talking about our love for God. How can you claim to have love for God abiding in you when you see a brother in need and you shut up your what? Your wallet? Well, that would be involved potentially, but he doesn't phrase it that way, does he? He says you shut up your heart from him. What we give to our brothers and sisters in need needs to be given from the heart. What we give to God is obviously to be given from the heart. That is, it's to be given willingly and not grudgingly. Uh, and uh, we understand that and we hopefully uh, give in that manner. And certainly we have very generous givers here at White Oak who give liberally of their means and obviously give from the heart. But this phraseology simply emphasizes how important it is to, to give for the right reason. Whether it's giving to God on the first day of the week or whether it's giving to a brother or sister in need. We don't do it grudgingly. We don't do it simply because it's our duty. We do it out of love. Love for God and the love that obviously flows from that love to extend to our fellow men. And how is that love? How is that love to be given? In word? Well, yes, certainly that's part of it. And so in verse 18, when John writes, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, he is not denying the need to tell brothers and sisters in Christ from time to time that we love them. He's not saying, don't ever tell anybody you love them. This is an elliptical expression. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue only is what is understood here, has to be understood. He's not saying, don't ever express love verbally. 
He's saying just make sure that that's not the only way that you express love, but that in your deeds and in your living of the truth, in your daily life, that people can see the love that you have for one another. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, as John records it there? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. There's the newness of that commandment. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he adds in verse 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, how will all know that we are the disciples of the Lord? John says it's not it is not solely by what we say to each other in expressing love. It's what the community around us, it's what our brothers and sisters can see in us by our actions and by our practice of the truth in loving that is vitally important. And so he is not diminishing the need to express our love for each other. It's good and proper to do so. But it must go beyond that and manifest itself Indeed, And so what we have here is simply an elliptical expression as we see at times in Scripture and people would do well to fully appreciate that. You remember one passage that comes to mind as an aside here uh, on a passage that is obviously used in the same way that John uses this passage is what the uh, Apostle Paul uh, said and wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17 when he was talking about the fact that there were some at Corinth who were pre had preacheritis. Uh, some were saying, I am of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of uh, Paul, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And then uh, at verse 17 he says what? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that's verse 14, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Then he goes on, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, besides I do not know whether I baptized any other. Then verse 17 is an expression very much like the expression we're looking at here in John's writing. He says there, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. There are some denominationalists who will latch on to that and say, Christ, you see there, baptism is not important. Baptism is not essential. Why, Paul said Christ didn't send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What is Paul saying? Christ did not send me only to baptize, or primarily to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism follows the preaching of the gospel. But Paul was simply saying, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any more of you than I did because you've got the problem of preacheritis, and if I had baptized a bunch of you, I'd have a bunch of Paulites instead of a bunch of Christians with the attitude that you're showing here at Corinth. That's what he's saying. But if the statement is a literal statement, Christ did not send me to baptize, period, then he violated the command, didn't he? Because he has already said, I baptized Crispus, I baptized Gaius, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Why would Paul have baptized any of those people if indeed Christ sent him not to baptize, period? Obviously, it's an elliptical expression as this one is. Little children don't love in word or tongue only, but love in deed and in truth. And then verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. 
Our hearts need to be assured before God. We need to be able to have confidence that we are of the truth. And what John is writing here is that those who are Christians, and keep in mind that he's writing to Christians, those who were doing their best to do the will of God, that when this love is present and this love can be seen, that gives assurance to every heart, the biblical heart, that indeed we are of the truth. And then he goes on, and we need to gain the fuller context, in verse 20 to write, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The context here indicates that there are times in the life of a Christian who is a dedicated, devoted child of God, when he or she may, may wonder in mind, Am I doing everything that I need to do? Am I really pleasing God? Am I doing uh, enough? In other words, the heart of that individual may at times question that, that conscientious individual to ask that question. Well, John has said, if we're showing our love for one another, that's an assurance to the heart of the faithful child of God that indeed you are doing what God would have you to do. And you don't need to be overly concerned and don't beat yourself up or don't be so hard on yourself because the manifestation of that love for the faithful child of God, the manifestation of that love and the love that you show is an assurance, a further assurance to calm the heart, so to speak, of the child of God who might at times wonder, am I really doing enough? Am I giving enough? Am I attending enough? Well, that's a beautiful spirit, isn't it? That's a wonderful attitude for a child of God who is a faithful child of God who says, I want to know that I am doing all that I need to do. And what John assures us of here is don't, don't let any question that arises in your heart cause you to have discomfort that could ultimately discourage you and maybe even destroy your faith. In other words, forgive yourself and make sure that you are forgiving yourself and that you're taking full advantage of the blood of Christ that cleanses you as you keep on walking and as you do all that you can do to be faithful to God. Don't be overly hard on yourself because sometimes the heart may condemn you, but verse 20 says God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows all things. God knows whether or not we're doing what we need to do, and we can know. We can know that. But that does not necessarily keep out of our minds at all times any questions that may sometimes arise whereby we ask, am I really doing everything I need to do? You know, there's a, there's a tremendous contrast between the attitude of the child of God who is doing everything he or she can to please God and may occasionally self-examine in a way to say, am I really doing enough? There's a vast difference in that attitude and the attitude of the one who would ask, well, where does it say I need to be here on Wednesday night? Or where do I find anything about Sunday night in the Scripture? Isn't there a world of difference between the attitude that will ask those questions 
and the attitude of the faithful child of God who's here every time the doors are open, who's actively involved in the work of the kingdom, but who may sometimes ask, I wonder if I'm still doing enough. Well, this passage gives assurance to the latter, to the one who is a diligent, devoted child of God. This is not a passage that says a person's heart, as long as a person's heart doesn't condemn him, he's fine with God. Whether he's the most wicked person uh, out here. He, he may be somebody whose heart has become hardened, but as long as his heart doesn't condemn him, then he's fine. No, they, this passage has nothing to do with that. This passage has everything to do with a faithful child of God who may at times wonder or ask himself, am I a profitable servant? Because you remember Jesus said when you've done all that's required, you still consider yourself an unprofitable servant. Because we can't earn our salvation. But by the same token, we don't need to be so hard on ourselves that we doubt our salvation. Because we can be assured that we, as we said earlier in the introduction of tonight's lesson, that we know that we know him. And in verse 21, John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If we have that confidence of heart, that assurance of our heart. If we don't doubt ourselves and we are manifesting our love and showing that love as an indication of the truth that is in us, then we do have indeed confidence toward God. And God wants us to have confidence. God does not want, as we have said before, us to live our lives in doubt from day to day, wondering whether or not from one day to the next we're in a saved condition. We don't have to live like that. And the passages we're looking at here in 1 John 3, 20 and 21 especially, are passages that tell us we don't have to live that way. That even when we do have questions, there is a way that we can answer those questions for ourselves and reassure ourselves that we are pleasing God. And the manifestation of love by deed and in truth and not in word only, is the acid test not for becoming a Christian, but it is a true acid test of whether or not we are living as we should as Christians. How are we loving? If we are loving as we should, as children of God, then we should be living as we should. And that's what John is emphasizing in this section of this epistle. That's why, as we said last time, love is so vitally important. And how we show that love for one another is so crucial. Not only because of what it says to each other, those who are members of the body of Christ, and how it encourages and lifts us up and encourages one another mutually, but also by what it says to those outside the body of Christ who know of us, who learn of us, and who may come into our midst and see in us a love and a bond that is unlike anything they've ever seen before. That's what John is stressing. And then he moves to the avenue of prayer and says, And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We have the assurance of prayer. 
as we continue to manifest the love of the truth in deed, not only in word. And as we live the Christian life, we have the assurance that our prayers go before the very throne of God through our mediator, Jesus Christ, and that those prayers are heard. What a blessing and a privilege prayer is in the life of the child of God. But this passage reminds us of what is clearly shown throughout Scripture, and that is the prayers that are heard by God are the prayers that are prayed by those who are walking with God and those who are living the Christian life. Whatever we ask, that is, those who are manifesting the love of God in their lives by the keeping of his commandments and the doing of the things that are pleasing in his sight, that is the prerequisite. Commandment keeping is the prerequisite for answered prayer. Proverbs 28, 9, an Old Testament passage reminds us that he who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. And so when we turn away from hearing God's law, we cannot expect for God, that God will hear and answer our prayers. But as we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have the full assurance that he hears. Full assurance that he answers as we keep on asking. And incidentally, every one of these verbs is in that present active indicative. Whatever we keep on asking is the idea here. We keep on receiving because we keep on keeping his commandments and keep on doing the things that are pleasing in his sight. It's a continual process by which we are assured that we have the answer to our prayers. And the commandment, a summary of it here in 1 John 3, 24, or 1 John 3, 23, and this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. That's a summary of what John has been advocating in this section of his great epistle. Believe on the name of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to believe on his name encompasses everything about the Christ. Not just the name Christ, obviously, but everything that the name entails, his authority, his majesty, his divinity, everything about the Christ we are to believe. And that belief is to be a belief that moves us to act by faith that manifests itself in our loving deeds and actions. Galatians 5 verse 6, as I've said before, one of the great summaries, I believe, in all of Scripture of what living the Christian life is all about. And it ties in beautifully with what John is writing here about love. Remember what Paul wrote there? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but, in other words, here's what does avail something, but faith working by love. Faith working by love. That's in complete harmony from Paul's pen by inspiration with what John, by his pen of inspiration, has said to us here. Here's the summary of it. You believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Love and commandment keeping, mutually inclusive. Faith which works by love. And then in verse, verse 24, the final verse we look at tonight. 
He who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We can know that we abide in God and that God abides in us. Does God abide in us? Yes, he does. Do we abide in God? Yes, we do. When you go over to chapter 4, a verse we'll see that ties in with these verses. And chapter 4 and verse 12, John will write, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Then down at verse 15 of 1 John 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. John clearly affirms time and again that we abide in God as faithful children and that God abides in us. What about Christ? Does Christ abide in us? We've talked about this subject before. Indeed, he does. Indeed, he does. When we go back to the Colossian letter, in Colossians chapter 1, remember the Apostle Paul there made it abundantly clear, Colossians chapter 1 At verse 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But in Ephesians 3 and verse 17, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. Ephesians 3, 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, etc., And so, God in you, you in God, Christ in you, you in Christ. But how does Christ dwell in our hearts? Through faith. And how does faith come? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, God abides in us and Christ abides in us clearly by what? By the word of God. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, as we have studied in the past, that's where all of that reasoning just simply flies out the window, it seems, for A lot of people. And they say, now then, now when we come to the Holy Spirit, who is a member of the Godhead, just as the Father, member of the Godhead, just as the Christ, but suddenly he becomes a mysterious it, or a mysterious substance, or some entity that overwhelms us, miraculously and directly and mysteriously. No. The Bible affirms clearly that the Spirit is in us, that he is in us. But the question is how? And the answer is just as God is and just as Christ is. The Spirit is in us by faith, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it is the Spirit through whom, not through which, but through whom we know that God is in us and that Christ is in us. Because if Christ is to dwell in our hearts by faith, and faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit gave us the Word of God, then we can say it's by the Spirit that God dwells in us. And that's what John says. The only way you can know that God is in you and that you are in God, or that Christ is in you, or that you are in Christ, is by the Holy Spirit. But how by the Holy Spirit? As the Holy Spirit has revealed the Word of God to you. And there's no other way that you're going to know that God is in you. It had to be through the Word. And the Spirit gave us the Word, therefore we can accurately say, and John does, that it's by the Spirit 
that God dwells in us and that Christ dwells in us and the Spirit himself dwells in us by that same word, that all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God. And so it's not simply the fact that the Spirit dwells in us, but it's the how behind the fact. And when one examines the evidence, I believe it is overwhelmingly clear in Scripture that behind the fact of his indwelling is the instrumentality of the written word and that it's through that written word that God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are said to dwell in us. And what does that word dwell mean? It's an accommodative expression that means to what? To influence us. How are you influenced by God? How are you influenced by Christ? How are you influenced by the Holy Spirit? By the book which I hold in my hand. The all-sufficient written word. And indeed, we need to spend a lot of time with it in that case, don't we? So that indeed, we can be assured, as John writes to Christians here, that God abides in us and that we abide in him. Tonight, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, you are not abiding in God, nor is he abiding in you. But that can all change with the determination that you make to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, act upon that faith by repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done those things but know that you have not continued to walk in the truth, to live the truth, and to love, and to manifest your love for your brothers and for all men, and that you need to come home to your first love in repentance. We plead with you to do that tonight. As we stand to sing, will you come?